In other words, 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 in other words. Good morning. Welcome to In Other Words. I'm your host of In Other Words, Susan Share. And thank you for joining us. I have Pam Weber with me today. Pam, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm glad we could finally work out the scheduling. Her book is called The Wiregrass. It says in the book, but can you tell us why it's called that? Mm -hmm. The Wiregrass is actually a region in the south, a triangle-shaped region in the south, that takes up part of southwest Georgia, southeast Alabama, and the panhandle of Florida. And it's a unique region. It's absolutely beautiful. There's an aquifer that runs underneath part of it, which influences the uh, plant growth and uh, the lushness of the area. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's semi-tropical almost, uh, very rural. Uh, and the geography is beautiful. The culture is unique. And uh, it was a great place to spend summers as a child. Okay. My mother was born and raised in the Wiregrass. Also in the Wiregrass is a place called Fort Rooker, which is where the United States... Which you talk States, about in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States Army does all the helicopter training. So my dad was based there. Part of this, the uniqueness of the region, is that the climate um, promotes the growth of, of what is called wiregrass. And this is, it's a nasty grass. It is sharp. <laughs> uh, it's not particularly pretty to look at. And if you walk on it uh, barefooted, you're likely to get scratched up. It, it said in the, what, 50s? Ni no, 1968. I love the lake that... Um... It wasn't a lake. It was just a, a spring, a natural spring that they enclosed to make a swimming pool. Okay, yeah, and I love the ritual of the first time in the summer that you get in there, you have to go to the bottom, grab a handful of sand, and pick it up and show everybody that you did it. Mm -hmm. I love that ritual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was that actually a ritual with you? Actually, it was. Cool. Now, authors always write from their own reality, but that does not mean they write their reality. I think most fiction writers use their life as a basis to launch a lot of stories from. In the Wiregrass, there's uh, a kernel of truth wrapped in a lot of fiction. The, some of the events happen, some of the cousins uh, are real, but again, it's a, just a, a kernel of truth wrapped in a tremendous amount of fiction. There's many characters okay. in the story um, that are fictitious. Is Nettie real? Uh, Nettie is a composite. No, Nettie is fiction. Okay. Now, we're talking about the book. What we haven't said is what it's about. It's a coming-of-age book, right? It is. It is a coming-of-age of a group of cousins that are very, uh, very close. They are all approaching puberty. They have spent uh, every summer that they can remember in this small town with their Aunt Petty and they are all, they're growing up. They are reaching puberty. They realize their lives are about to change uh, in ways that they're ready for and in some ways they're not ready for. And this is about their journey through this summer 
it's almost like a summer of discontent where they know things are changing <laughs> and they can't stop it. Back then, uh, and I could remember this as a child, we had a lot more freedom than my children yeah. had growing up today and that, that uh, even you know back in the 70s and 80s, it started to tighten up and they did not let them run free. Uh, in the 60s, we ran free. Um, yeah. Our, we really did. Yeah. Our parents didn't know where we were until dinner time. Is it that it is more dangerous or is it that we just think it is? No, I think there is uh, an increased element of danger now. The, there's so many ways now that uh, people can find out about um, how to abuse children and That's a good with the point. internet. And back then, I think, was it present? Absolutely it was present, but I don't think it was um, as prominent as it is today, and I don't think people were socialized to it back then. Back then it was still shocking to hear mm -hmm. when, when children were abused or bad things, you know, when there was domestic abuse. People were shocked uh, and they tried hard to do something about it. Today, uh, you don't see that quite as much. You don't see that outrage. I um, found an interesting statistic not long ago from the uh, Center, of, Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Mm -hmm. And they said that in 2014, over a million children, a million children were either sexually abused or at risk for being sexually abused. Uh, and we didn't hear about that. That's a million children. Uh, we hear about the latest Hollywood scandals. We hear about the latest sports scandals. But the fact that we, in 2014, over a million reports of actual or potential abuse were made uh, against children, and we didn't hear anything about it. Um, I think we're getting socialized to it so much that we just turn a deaf ear. And the fact that it did exist back then is a very prominent theme in the book. Well, it's yes. not a theme, but it's, um, how would you describe it? It's a storyline. It is a storyline in the book. Mm -hmm. There's several storylines that mm -hmm. work their way through the wiregrass. So these are basically typical kids. In, i got to ask you, DJ and Eric, these are the two oldest cousins. You mean uh, JD and Eric? Uh -huh. Yes, they I do. The yes, I do. Ones. Uh -huh. they I don't are know the what oldest. I said, but that's what I meant, yeah. Were they really as generous and as good with the kids? I mean, these kids got along incredibly well. Absolutely. They took such good care of the little ones. Absolutely, and that was the expectation back then, is that if you were with a group, you took care of the group. And yes, um, uh, they, uh, John David died several years ago, uh, but John Eric David is still is living. And if I were to describe their real personas, and yes, they are everything that uh, is portrayed in the book. Uh, John David is JD. Uh-huh. Right. And he's real and he died? He was real and he did die. He was our family's version of Huckleberry Finn. He uh, really was. And he was, uh, and Eric was Tom Sawyer. Fearless. They were fearless. They were fun-loving. They sometimes did not make the best decisions. Uh, <laughs> but they did care. Who they among did us does? <laughs> yeah. And the... I think the, the cousins represented in the book basically uh, do the same thing. Just listeners, to give you an idea, when the cousins 
first uh, all get together, uh, you know, when they've all arrived for the first time, they they all go out exploring, and immediately there's a a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, two six-year-olds. Okay. And, you know, they are years behind the others. They can't keep up. And so J.D. and Eric always put one of them on their back mm -hmm. when it's necessary. Like, you know, your feet, we don't have the shoes yet. Your feet can't handle this. It's too hot. Or we need to move faster than you can run. I mean, anything. They just, it was just understood mm -hmm. that the kids would And be that's the way it was. That's the way it was. That's one of the... Uh, pieces of their culture that I just absolutely love. It is very family-oriented. Families are close. They, they talk every day, um, uh, if not multiple times a day. They're very caring. Uh, and these are extended families. These just aren't small nuclear families. Uh, oh, yeah. And there is a closeness and a caring about them that um, I imagine it's in other regions. I don't see it quite as evident in other regions as I do in the wiregrass. And that's one of the things that I wanted to represent in the book is this relationship with families, with grandmothers, with aunts and uncles and children and cousins, um, where they could see the dynamics um, in these extended families. You're going to see more of that in rural communities, of course, because, mm -hmm. well, largely because they can. Everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, a, that's right. Mm -hmm. if now it's neighborhoods instead of, of being entire communities and towns. Good uh, point. Small towns, it's neighborhoods. One of the, the great things about small towns such as that, uh, Crystal Springs represented in the Wiregrass, that they can see how it can happen. You know, there can be concern for the neighbor. There can be concern for uh, and welcoming of even strangers. That's the unique thing that Mitchell basically was a stranger coming into this uh, into this group, and he was welcomed with open arms, uh, which you don't always see in today's culture. This welcoming of strangers. The cousins embraced him as a friend. Uh, and it's really about adolescence and then that just common language that adolescents speak. And then you take, you take that adolescent freedom and then you filter in puberty in all of these kids. <laughs> and it makes for some very interesting situations. And that was a, that was a very uh, fun part of the book to write. Not only is the story really good, because, you know, you find that in a lot of books, but Ms. Weber can write. <laughs> I mean, the words flow easily. This cannot be said of all the books I have been asked to read recently. Well, and thank really, you. She, I appreciate you're, that. You're welcome. You're welcome. I look forward to uh, what else is coming out. You are going to write some other books, aren't you? I am. There is going to be a sequel to The Wiregrass that is in progress right now. So let, let's talk some more about the uh, coming-of-age stories, because one that I particularly liked, Nettie is beginning to develop, as Tilly, the owner of the diner, says, woman parts. Mm -hmm. and, and she does not like this. She's used to just playing with the guys, like she does when the cousins are all together. Mm -hmm. And this becoming, having, starting to have a shape is really throwing her. She does not like it. She calls it half lemons on uh -huh. her chest now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that. Her sister Sam, who is older, has whole lemons and seems to be happy with it. And she doesn't understand that until she sees Mitchell. Mm -hmm. 
uh, her her cutoffs don't fit. Um, people are looking at her funny. Uh, Tilly, you know, draws attention to the fact that that she is changing, and she's very uncomfortable with it. And all of a sudden, she meets Mitchell, and she's feeling things and thinking things that uh, just a few weeks earlier had been foreign to her, and she wanted no part of. Okay, so you mentioned their adventures. Let's talk about their adventures. They did get themselves, what they didn't get in trouble for the most part because they didn't get caught. Mm -hmm. This uh, group of cousins were very mischievous and they mm -hmm. had a habit or one of, their, one of the things that they liked to do over the summer was toilet paper people's yards, which, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, the trees, the shrubs, mm -hmm. the, the lawn furniture, the carports, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, and just sit back and wait for the reaction. And they never got caught. Um, and Aunt Pity's line was basically, if you can prove it was them, then fine. But if you can't prove it, um, that it was them, then they are, then then they are considered away. innocent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one thing I loved about... Um, Ain't pity was she maintains plausible deniability. She locks <laughs> yes. the door. She locks the back door so the kids can't get out. But I think she's pretty well guesses that they know where she hides the spare. Mm -hmm. And of course they think she doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, this was also back in the day when children roamed around at night. It wasn't a huge deal that, you know, oh. if they wanted to go downtown to get a Coke out of the vending machine, they could do it. Uh, if they wanted to just take a walk, uh, they could do that as well. It wasn't quite like it is now where at the end of the day you go in the house and you lock the door. So they routinely would be sitting on the porch long after uh, Aunt Pity and Uncle Ben went to bed. And that's, that's where they did a lot of their planning and their conniving, was sitting right. on the front porch of, right. of Aunt Pity's house. And one of the things is when they got there, if you remember the, the scene where the sheriff stops by, that mm -hmm. changed their behavior. They're beginning to, uh, uh, their reign of, of mischievousness and terror is beginning to come to an end because the, the, the sheriff stops by. So they curtail a lot of it. Um, except for the toilet papering, which ultimately yeah. um, uh, sends them down the wrong path and, right, and that is has their consequences. That's right. Yeah. That is that's right. Yeah, and one of uh, the, the thing, one of the things I love is that at the end, towards the end of the book, they start to realize what reality is. Like they think they're perfectly justified in these pranks, and they start to realize no that they are responsible for some of the problems that they are trying to redress. Mm -hmm. they're, they're slowly maturing, and that was one of yeah. the intents of, of the book, was the storyline of the maturation uh, of these children and their maturation uh, paralleling what is going on with Mitchell and the lessons that they uh, gleam from uh, Mitchell and their family as they go mm -hmm. along. So yeah, they're beginning to develop a moral fabric of, well, wait a minute, maybe this isn't so good. Maybe I should not be doing these things. Now, there's there's this neighborhood cat. They they call him Satan. Uh huh, Satan. Is that right? Okay. I always get mixed up Satan or demon, but yeah, he's he's Satan. Not his real name, by the way. And there's this, and they hate Satan. Well, obviously. And he terrorizes the chickens. You know, Aunt Pity has chickens. 
and they, he terrorizes them, tries to kill them and eat them. But, you know, that's what cats do. That is what cats do. But um, the cat, Satan plays a very distinct role in uh, uh, what he is doing with the children, what the children are doing with Satan and the lessons that Satan yeah. teaches them. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and it's a fun fun part of the story. Um, there is a part of this story that actually is true. I won't tell you which part. I'll let the readers okay. kind of figure that out. But, okay. um, yeah, the Satan the Cat, uh, he got his name simply because he flat tore those kids up. Satan was a nemesis to them. And ends up teaching them so many lessons that summer. Satan and many others, yes. Yeah. And now... They, they do get caught. The kids do get caught with a couple of their TPing episodes. And the way it is handled is, is just amazing to me. Uh, they are held responsible for it, and they are made to uh, make amends. But nobody gets angry at them. They that get was the, the way of a small town, the small towns, and that's one of the reasons why... Um, the children went back to Crystal Springs every summer because there was a growing up that needed to take place where there was a kindness of hands, uh, where the lessons were um, handed down with love. Not that, not that they got away with everything, and they did get away with a lot, but when, when uh, the story comes and their accountability is, is at hand. It is administered with love. There's not a yeah. uh, not a hard anger. There's. Uh, it's like um, this is what uh, you have done. This is what we need to do. Uh, and it's it's a guided learning experience. And I know that's a very 21st century term, but uh, it was taking place in the in the 60s as well, where people realized yeah. that they were dealing with adolescence and and that simple anger was not the answer. Yeah, because there was nothing wicked or bad. Um, they had no evil in them. They, they had no meanness in them. Mm -hmm. The pranks that they played were revenge, really. They thought they were justified. Like, people that they thought were not nice to ain't pity. They would pull these pretty much harmless pranks. The TPing was the worst it got, and that was inconvenient. It, it didn't really cause any damage. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the darker theme. We have alluded to it, and because I don't want to give anything away, why don't you talk about that? Well, it's it's life. The story is about life, and even though the, the main characters are adolescent, life still takes place, and there's still bad people um, mm -hmm. and who do bad things, regardless of whether you're in Virginia or California or in the southern wiregrass. Uh, so it would have not been realistic to represent the time or the era and not have some of the themes, uh, some of those negative or, or dark themes going through the story. One of my special interests is... Um, the prevention of child abuse and at least today we've got a little bit 
uh, more legal protection than they did back then. But in the, in the 1960s, child abuse was not a favorite topic. Uh, it was one of those things like sex and puberty that was uh, kind of pushed behind that dark door or behind closed doors and nobody, nobody talked about it. And adolescents were aware of what some of the things that were happening. They may not have understood it, but they were aware of it. The adults were, um, and this was, one of these storylines in particular was an attempt to raise awareness um, not only of the issue of domestic abuse and child abuse, but that our children are aware of it. They know what's going on. They need, um, uh, uh, need more intervention uh, just so mm -hmm. they understand it and the reporting of it and how to, uh, what they can do to uh, make sure that it doesn't happen again. So I wanted to address that, those issues. Uh, and within the context of children, these adolescents, developing a moral conscience of, you know, here they are doing these, these nuisance pranks while very serious, life-threatening, uh, horrible things are going on um, uh, at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and it was, it was interesting to give those cousins, uh, within the context of their dialogue, how they dealt with it, how they were reasoning with this, uh, and then factor in the, uh, the faith issue because this is the Deep South in the 60s, and the Deep South is still a very uh, faith-filled place, but in the 60s it was particularly so. So it was trying to find that middle ground of um, where faith plays a role and does it play a role and, and the growing up and developing a moral conscience in the presence of, of very uh, uh, dark uh, people, evil people. Uh, it was interesting to work the dialogue for that. There is child abuse in the story. Mm -hmm. And we find out almost as soon as we meet Mitchell that he's the one being abused, right? Mm -hmm. He, Mitchell, Mitchell is the center of the secret, and uh -huh. child abuse is only part of the secret. Uh, but he, yes. he, yeah, he is the um, he is the center of the secret. He is the impetus for a lot of things happening in the context of the story. Yeah, and clearly, it, a, it becomes clear very quickly that his father beats him. And yes, that is not the whole story, but we know this. But the thing that amazes me about Mitchell, and, and you know more about this than I do, maybe this is the way these children are, he never loses his sense of joy. I mean, the kids don't see him depressed. He always stays up. In fact, he says, always choose happy. Mm -hmm. His mother well, taught him that. That's exactly right, the relationship of this beautiful boy with his mother. Um, and the impact that she has uh, on his life all along. And I really wanted to be able to show um, how adolescents, how children will grab onto happy whenever they can, regardless of the situation. They're quite resilient children, children so that, and adolescents. So that is pretty accurate. It's a pretty accurate picture of an abused child. Mm-hmm. Or one accurate picture. Okay. Yeah, and... I think this has to be said too, if, if the parent is so concerned, you know, if the mother is so concerned about protecting the child, why doesn't she leave? But this is a small town 
and there's nowhere she could have gone that he wouldn't have found her. Well, and it's, it's true today. Uh, how many domestic abuse situations are the, the, the parents, whether the father is the abuser or the abused or the mother's the abuser or the abused, uh, where they stay in that abusive situation for whatever reason, whether they feel like uh, they can't support themselves or whether they're afraid for their lives or whether they have no place to go. That's a pretty universal theme in abusive uh, families. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what the the burning bed. Remember that? I do that remember show? that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the first time that it was shown. I I don't know if any of that was real or not, but the only way this woman could escape with her li life and the lives of her children, she tried many times, and she had to kill him. There was no other way to get away. Mm -hmm. The law would. I not remember that movie him. well. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I wanted to get through in the Wiregrass as well was this perception of powerlessness, the, the children's perception of powerlessness, the, uh, uh, the victims, the abused victims' uh, mm -hmm. sense of powerlessness, um, and where they, where they get their power from. How did the children find their power to do something about what was, what was going on? Uh, and that was, that's a, almost as an important uh, outcome in the story uh, as the abuse itself. It's, it's got a good um, uh, trend at the end, I think, to, uh, to turn, that, turn that domestic abuse situation uh, around a little bit. Well, what it did in the wire grass in the community was at least got it out of the shadows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And said, look, we know this is going on. There, there are facts. It's no denying it. There might be others. Let's be real uh, be really alert for it. Well, and it's 1968, and if you can remember back what was going on in 68, the Vietnam War was in you know full swing, right. and uh, so much social change, women's rights uh, mm -hmm. uh, were, were huge. That's exactly right. It mm -hmm. was it was a, a sociological upheaval that was going on, um, and domestic abuse literally got in line with all the other things that were coming. Uh, into view. Um, it was an awakening of sorts uh, that this stuff is taking place now. What can we do about it? Yeah, because uh, nobody talked about it before then. It was mm -hmm. shameful. That's right. Which is an attitude I still don't really get. I mean, I can understand an abused woman being ashamed to let people know that the guy hits her. And I do understand why the woman stays. It's, it, there's no good reason, but to her it seems a real reason. I understand that. But the kids, I mean, well, I guess that would be shameful. I guess that would be shameful. If, if I tell if you it, what, I was an intensive care nurse and emergency room nurse I was for many get years. To that, yeah. Uh huh. And, and a nurse practitioner now. And nationally I have certified and award-winning mm -hmm. university-level nursing educator. Well, thank you for that. I You're welcome. That, Susan. <laughs> um, but I've seen I've seen much more than I ever wanted to see. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of cases of abuse, more than I ever wanted to see. And <sighs> I think the thing that struck me was uh, the number of reasons uh, parents had for. Uh, what had happened to the children or to the to the spouse, how they got mm -hmm. their arm broken, how they got the black eyes, how they got the teeth knocked out or ended up in surgery for abdominal uh, abdominal trauma. 
there's as many reasons as there are leaves on a tree as to why people do this and the same number of reasons as to why people stay. Um, but I think when you strip it all down, it's, it boils down to this idea of powerlessness, that they feel powerless to um, change their situation. And, and that's one of the things in the wiregrass that I wanted to uh, explore with these adolescents and with Mitchell was this perception of powerlessness and, and what they did about it. Yeah, and one of the reasons they have a perception of powerlessness, of course, is that the abuser threatens. Mm -hmm. And they threatens believe to hurt them or those that they love. Those that they love, yeah. Because the kids actually, from what I could see, get to the point where they will risk themselves being hurt. That's but, right. Yeah, but not the ones they love because of them. Mm -hmm. Adolescents uh, who love are quite protective. They're protected of their parents. They're protective of their siblings. They might fight like cats and dogs with their siblings, but let that sibling be threatened. Right. And siblings can become very protective. And the same situation oh, yeah. was there with the cousins, that they were very protective of one another, and they became very protected of, protective of Mitchell as well. Because, yeah, he became one of the cousins. Uh, one of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's important that these issues come to light, and they are coming to light now. People do know it. In fact, there, if, if any medical personnel or uh, therapist or anything like that has reason to believe, really has reason to believe that an, a, ch a child is being abused, they are required by federal law to report it. That's correct. They are obligated to report and thanks to the uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children, we know that roughly a, a million children a year are either abused or at risk of abuse. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's time for moms and dads and aunts and uncles um, uh, and singles and neighbors and friends to step up uh, and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Today, we have to be so careful because, um, believe it or not, we have people who actually put false uh, suggestions in children's heads yes. when they talk about it. It doesn't happen too often and, and still that is an area that the authorities, we have techniques now that can differentiate out uh, truth from fiction. fiction. But regardless, uh, if there is concern about the possibility of risk of child abuse, um, then it needs to be reported and let the experts um, ferret out the rest. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, I understand, Pam, that you've gotten some feedback on the way these characters talk. Now, to me, it just sounded like, you know, what I would expect a, a Southern kids to talk like, but it, that has not been the feedback? Oh, no, no. It's been, the feedback on the dialect has been really good. Um, a oh, lot okay. of times in, when you're writing about the South and attempt to use Southern dialect, uh, it can go to one or the other extremes. Either you've got too much dialect and it's so thick and convoluted and complex that the reader stumbles trying to read it or has to go back and reread sentences multiple times to try and figure out what they were talking about. Like All Uncle way, Remus. 
was uh-huh. written that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example, Will Campbell's um, Brother to a Dragonfly. I love that book, but sometimes the language is so Southern that I have to go back and I have to reread sentences over and over again. Uh, and then sometimes it's so extreme that you don't get any hint of that, uh, <laughs> that Southern dialect that is so, uh, so beautiful. So when I was writing The Wiregrass, I was trying hard to figure out how to find a nice balance uh, uh-huh. in that dialect. So I, um, uh, and especially this being a novice, my uh, uh, first attempt uh, being a novice fiction writer, I wanted to make sure that, that I did strike balance and, and that I got it right. Um, so I just decided uh, on a couple of very basic rules uh, to bring in that southern dialect, like dropping the G uh, in the dialogue when the cousins were talking with one another. Um, and ain't. So uh, and a, ain't, apostrophe, uh, you know, ain't. A-I-N apostrophe T. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ain't in the terms of being an ant, like it's ain't pity. Mm-hmm. It's not ant pity. It's ain't pity. And that's just... Um, I love that. Uh, that's unique, <laughs> to the, unique to the South. So... Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, the feedback so far is that, that it works, that the dialogue, the balance of the dialogue works. You get, there's enough of it that you get a sense of uh, time and place. In fact, one of uh, 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 the reviewers for the book uh, actually um, uh, blurbed the book for me, uh, David L. Robbins, uh, said that the time and place of the Wiregrass uh, was extraordinarily written, which I'm very grateful, uh, but part of that was the dialogue, the use of the dialogue to give the reader the sense that they were in the South but not kill them um, with, uh, with the language. Yeah, I didn't realize how much went into striking that balance, as you say, because uh, it, it, it really, it you got the sense of it. That's all I got from it. I knew they were in the South. I knew they had their own way of speaking, but it was entirely understandable. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I hadn't realized how much of an effort that takes. Oh, gosh, it took months to figure it out. <laughs> months and months. <laughs> okay, now this is your first book. First of all, how did this happen? because you are, as we said earlier, a nationally certified nurse practitioner and award-winning university-level nursing educator. That's the part my mother would have been so happy about because that's what she was. Oh, cool. Very um, good. Yeah. But, um, and you've, co- you've published articles and co-authored nursing textbooks. Why a novel? You know, a lot of folks have asked me about that and I don't know that I have a single reason I think there are multiple reasons the first is that the story was there Uh, I knew I wanted to tell the story of this little town and interesting the little town is gone it is it simply uh, faded away so I knew that if I did not try and capture what that town was like uh, at the time uh, and what I ended up doing is making a composite town, a composite town of everything that mm-hmm. was unique to that region, um, and tell the stories, uh, some of the stories uh, that were real and uh, represent these people who were so extraordinary uh, that my children and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and on would never know about it because it's gone. And then one of the cousins died um, 
JD died, John David died. Uh, and I knew even more importantly that if people were going to know this extraordinary human being, uh, that the story had to be had to be told, um, and then I also wanted to get more information from my mother, who was ill and died several years ago. That uh, for my children and ch grandchildren and great grandchildren and so forth to know where she was from uh, before she died, I was able to um, spend extended time with her, and she told me some of these great stories and the nuances of growing up uh, in that rural South. That uh, and the fact that I really wanted to do something different. I've been uh, writing science and uh, research and textbooks for a long time. And uh, the creativity side of me, in science, there's not a lot of tremendous creativity. You are dealing in the land of factual information and evidence. Uh, and I wanted the more creative side to be able to have an outlet as well, to be able to uh, just use imagination to uh, to tell this story, and it was wonderful. I absolutely uh, loved doing it. We um, just finished up a huge study. It's called the Stewie Study, where we were actually <laughs> working with. We used Stewie just because we knew the kids would react. That uh, they knew who Stewie was. When we started the study, I didn't know who Stewie was. Stewie, we're talking about the baby on the, family. Yeah, the baby on on TV. What's but, it called? Family. Uh, the Family uh, Guy. Family guy. Yeah, Family Guy. Yeah. But the study involved teens and uh, teenagers, which was great. We've been do we did this study over a period of two years. Uh, so while I was writing about um, adolescents and teens, I was actually working with adolescents and teens, and it was wonderful. So you had a really like bird's eye view of adolescents, because this is one of the things that. I found a little unbelievable in the book, but I realize now it's entirely believable. Adolescents, whatever else you can say about them, do some really stupid things. <laughs> yes, they do. I mean, they get caught once, and it doesn't stop them. I mean, there are some pretty dire results, dire consequences, and, and to, to the other person, not to them. And they do it again. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the plans in the book, if you notice, that these kids were great planners. They knew exactly what they were going to do. They kind of mapped out their summer. They knew what, right. what was on the agenda. And That's there they was do this, that when they uh -huh. first get there. They uh -huh. talk to each other, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is whose house we're going to keep in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they had this sense of completing the mission. The other thing was that they also knew, remember, this yeah. was the summer yes. of their discontent. So right. it was this sense that if DJ we saw this, at the, at the, it, towards the very end, DJ says this. That's JD. right. Yeah. That they've they've been doing this for so long, and they've been you know they're they're growing up, and puberty is hitting, and they know their life is changing. And this is the one thing from their summers that keeps them children. It keeps them in in the adolescent role, and they are reticent to give it up. They don't want to give it up, yeah. which is one of the motivating reasons why the story plays yeah. out like it does in the end. Uh, but it's that and, and really, you, you can't blame them for that, really. Everybody wants to hold their life. If your life is good, everybody wants to hold it right where it is. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way life works. Things change. Right. And the kids are realizing this. And they're saying, well, let's not have a change right now. Mm -hmm. They know once they give it up, it's over. That their right. summers, as they have known them, are over. And they, are, they don't want to do it. 
they don't so want to give it up. Not yet. So what did happen? I mean, and that is is the sort of thing like as I was telling you earlier. I don't have kids. I don't work with adolescents that much. To me, it seemed unbelievable, but that is actually the way they are. It is exactly keep, the way they are. Mm-hmm. Make stupid mistakes because mm-hmm. of the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The, the Stewie study, tell me a little more about that. We, um, we have a, I have a research team that was investigating the likelihood of uh, diabetes and heart disease in teenagers. Um, can we predict it? And we were particularly looking at serum indicators. Uh, You know how adults will get their cholesterol levels checked and their blood glucose checked. And we did the same thing, um, but looking at serum indicators of the likelihood of the development of diabetes and heart disease in teenagers. The thought being that if we can identify it early, we can prevent it. Right. So is that working? The results of the study showed that, uh, yes, number one, um, the, there are um, uh, a significant, uh, statistically, uh, there is significance in the presence of uh, some of the serum indicators for diabetes. What we did find shows that uh, it certainly warrants more uh, investigation. Okay. Now, obviously, there's more novels coming because I can't believe you're planning just one sequel and right. that, the that's sequel it. Is, yeah, well, uh, we'll work on the sequel. There, uh, Hopefully there's a third one coming, but right now I'm uh, working hard on the second one. Yeah, well, even if there's not a third one, I imagine there will be a third novel of some mm-hmm. sort. Mm-hmm. Are you looking for this to replace your nursing career? At some point, yes. I would uh-huh. like to do it. I would like to do it full-time. I'm not quite ready to give up on... Um, the, the specialties and the things that I am working on now. I practice mm-hmm. one day a week as a nurse practitioner. Uh, I teach full-time. Uh, I'm not quite ready to give that up, but when I am and it's getting closer and closer, um, then, yeah, I would like to work on uh, novel writing full-time. Great. I wish you all the best of luck with that. So, again, we've been talking with Pam Weber and her, about her book, The Wiregrass. Wonderful coming-of-age story set in the South in the 60s. It's, it's just a lot of fun and an easy read, too. You can find her at pamweber.com, and Weber is spelled with two Bs. Okay. Well, thank you, Pam. Oh, it was, this was fun. Thank you, Susan. And You're uh, I enjoyed it very much. I'm glad you did. Thank you. And you've been listening to In Other Words with your host, Susan Scher. You can find me and my editing and writing business at inotherwordsgroup.com. Thanks for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye.